I wanted to write. I wanted to see straight. I wanted to live in California. I wanted to be on the beach and sing songs with the Beach Boys. I remember that. That's what I wanted. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just so delighted to welcome Leah Kamaiko to the My Fourth Act podcast. Leah has a truly impressive professional background, which includes doing stand-up and writing 21 popular and best-selling books for kids of all ages, including two recognized modern classics. She wrote a memoir for adults, which was optioned and developed for Hollywood. And as a fellow author, I just want to say you've been published by some powerhouse places, HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, Random House, St. Martin's Press. So these are the big leagues. Leah is the first and only story and branding consultant who got her initial hire with a Fortune 100 company because she discovered, and I love this, which is why I'm reading this, the connection between a brand that sticks and a children's classic. Leah currently helps both individuals and organizations to find and communicate their essential stories. I can't wait to talk to you, Leah, and also to learn more about how you continue to write the story of your own life and the next chapters that might be emerging. With that said, hi, Leah. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So excited. Oh, it's so much my pleasure. Because you've had, I mean, this is the best sense, an unusual career and life journey. I always wonder, like, when you were a young girl growing up, you know, how mom and dad always ask, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? And what was on your mind? Like, how did you answer that question when people asked you? I answered that I wanted to, given my background, I wanted to live in a different house. That's what I wanted to be when uh -huh. I was there. I wanted to write. I knew I wanted to write. Made up my mind early. I wanted to be a writer. I had to have a couple of surgeries on my eyes when I was a kid in order to be able to see properly and straighten. So I wanted to see straight. That was like a big vision of mine, which actually very much guided how I looked at my career and how I learned how to listen to people and everything else. But I wanted to write. I wanted to see straight. Um, I wanted to live in California. I wanted to be on the beach and sing songs with the Beach Boys. I remember that. That's what I wanted. <laughs> I chuckle to myself because my sense is a lot of that has manifested for you, right? I... I lived at the beach. I had a house right on the beach. I was married to a guy who surfed a little bit too much, pretty much. Yes. And I, I married them. Again, we got a divorce at the right time. I still live in California. So, you know. I celebrate with you knowing when to move on in every aspect of our lives. I think that's, that's good to know how to do that. I We have so much to talk about. And I, I was so intrigued learn that you had done some stand-up in my mind that is connected to writing of course but it's also something that can be terrifying to many people so would you just tell us how how did that come about in your life 
I was curious. I I knew I wanted to write. I people would always say to me, "Oh, you're so funny." I didn't know if I was so funny, but um, I was kind of searching. Okay, well, you know, I'm I'm writing and I like writing, and I oh, can I never like really be in front of people? So I was have, going through a breakup of a relationship. You know, when you're younger, it's kind of like, eh, why not? Maybe I'll own a spaceship. You know. I started writing some stuff and I went to the, I was living in Hollywood at the time and I went to the comedy store, comedy club. We're like, I went to the improv. That's where I went, the improv comedy club. And um, they had this open mic thing there. I went up to the guy that owned the club. His name was Bud Friedman. I said, I want to be a comedian. He said, that's very funny. And that's why. <laughs> Perfect answer. Yeah. So, you know, um, I did it for a few years. I was a wreck every time before going on stage. And and then the other people would say to me, look, if you're not a wreck, you're not a comedian. I'm thinking I'm a little bit too much of a wreck. There was not that many women doing it at the time. And my writing was good because I was just right. I don't know why, because I was just writing about breaking up with somebody. I think I still on, on tape someplace have this routine. But the thing of it was, is that you know, it came down to, did I really want to focus my career on being out on the road and doing this kind of stuff? And more importantly, I grew up in a very classically trained artistic family. Not only was I living in Hollywood, which to my parents and to me was like a huge shock. But when you when you do stand up at the end of the night, you're basically in a club with a bunch of drunk people and I don't drink and it just wasn't fun. But uh, I learned so much, and I got to meet some great comedians. The thing I'm very curious about, I have a theater background. But when I envision you or anybody standing on stage when you do stand-up, I see there's constant immediate feedback. Either it lands or it doesn't. They like it or not. It's about approval or not approval. And it's instant. It's this instant feedback loop. Because in the rest of life, we can sort of mask all of this stuff, but you can't mask it on stage. What was that like to immediately know this worked, this didn't work? They liked it, they didn't. Well, I was shocked because I didn't know what I was doing the whole time. And as you know from being a theater person, probably, when you're looking out into a dark room, you can't see anybody. You can just hear, and then you can, at the time, people were still smoking, I think, so you could see, like, smoke. And it felt, I'm sure I was just in a state of shock the whole time. But I think that what really struck me were the moments when I realized when I didn't try, when I had my well-crafted lines and everything, when I didn't try, I got laughs. Without the effort, I got the laughs. And that, most importantly, that I didn't realize what was really funny. Like, when I first went up on stage, I had been in a car accident. And I had a neck brace, but I said, I'm going up there anyway. I'm not waiting for my neck to heal. I'm keep putting this off. So I went up with a neck brace and I didn't realize that people thought that was part of the act, that they thought it was funny. They thought it was hilarious. So the point being that I don't really know what's funny. I don't know what's not funny, but I know that the improv moments were, were the best. The ones where somebody would like, I didn't get heckled a lot, but when they when somebody heckled me, I could snap back really quickly, and that was like kind of a great moment. Although it also felt kind of good, but um, you know, <laughs> you know so there was a it was a mixed bag, you know. Well, so let's play with this one. 
we're talking about performance, but I also want to maybe relate this to talking about life in general. You yeah. know, there is some people have an improvisational mindset when it comes to life, which is let me just see where it takes me and respond to what life sends my way. And yeah. there are those people who plan meticulously. And yeah. I, I'm not saying one is better than the other, but in your experience of life, how are they different from each other? How are they similar? How they how do they relate to each other? You mean how do they meaning like comedy and or just how do you can talk about you can talk about writing, you can talk about stand up, you can talk about how you do life. Are you a planner in life? You go with the flow and just respond to uh, what comes your way. Well, clearly, I go with the flow because if I didn't, I'd be much richer. Um, I uh, I think I've I just I've planned. I've tried all of it. I've planned. I've, I go with the flow, and I'm also pretty much strategically focused. But that's taken years to get to. Mostly, we just like going with the flow, and um, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm meticulously planned. No, I, I've often wished that I would be one of those people, but I am not. No, as a writer, and I'm having you know, you kind of have to plan to a certain extent, or you won't get a page done. But I feel like. As I've gotten older, I've got been more going with the flow in a good way as opposed to going with the flow of like a no, just going with the flow of like a decision. I'm going to go with the flow as opposed to, you know, you're in a uh, mudslide and everything's just flowing. I appreciate the way you said it. My mind goes as I get older and you and I are roughly the same age is I trust the flow a little more and I can I can tell when the flow is not a good flow and I know that I better not stay in this flow. Well put. Thank yeah. you. You trust that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, when you started to write children's books and you've written like 20, that's insane. Your first children's book was that, was that a strategic decision or did that just sort of happen? No, that's a great story. I got my first kid's book. I got, a, I got a three book deal, which was really lovely. And, um, so my first book, kids book, I wrote my first one that I wrote. I, I wrote word, it was, uh, and I was under contract, so it was a strategic decision. But it was the first book I wrote is my the favorite I've ever written. It was very crafted. It was very hard. It was very beautiful. It was, and then, but the first book that came out, I threw in the garbage can because I wrote it, and I thought, I mean, I owed a book to the publisher. And I thought, this is terrible. This is, they're not going to want this at all. And then I was talking to somebody. She said, just send it over there. Anyway, the first book that I wrote, I wrote in two and a half hours. It is the only one that still sells to this day in print. Can you please mention the, the t- mention the title of the book, please. The book is called Annie Banani. Yes. Thank and you. it's been around for 30, you know, 30 some years. Yeah. And it got, that, that's the book that's, you know, it, when I meet people, they go, oh, it's Annie Banani. It's like, I wrote that in two and a half hours. And it just kind of, <laughs> you know, it, it just kind of flowed out. But that doesn't happen. No, it, it's, uh, there's so many places to go with what you just said. So as a writer who's done lots of writing, stand up and, and other kind of writing, how do you write when it doesn't just flow out? You know, you have a contract, you've got to deliver a book, but it's not flowing the way Annie Banani did. So how how do you execute 
under those circumstances? Like when I think about something that I'm working on now with a client and it's under a contract and I think about the way when it doesn't work now, now it's very differently than when I was writing back then. But I think what I do now is I just know to back off, you know, it's like, it's not flowing. It's not working. Kind of stand away. I walk away from it. Maybe I'll go for a walk, but I know not to panic because I sort of start now with the knowing I can do this. It's always before I start, I always know, okay, I've seen the ending of this. I hear the rhythm of it. I know the beat of it. Um, I can do this thing. I'm finding as I get older, I'm a little bit less confident, even though the work is really good. Now, there's something about being younger where it's like, I can do anything, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then time goes on. It's like, I can do anything except at the same time, I've got this going on and that going on and this going, you know, so it's just different. But I just assume that if I can see the ending before I get started, I'll get there. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act mastermind groups where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. Since you wrote a memoir, and again, I'm speaking as somebody who's done a lot of memoiristic writing, it's been published, so it's a narrative that interests me in a style. Yeah. And I know there are so many different lenses you can use to write about your life. And uh, so when you wrote a memoir, since you're a story coach for people, I'm sure you had to think about, so what's the story I want to tell about my life? Like, what, what was your memoir about, or what did you focus on in your memoir? Afraid I was getting old. I was afraid I was getting old. This is a while back. So a friend of mine who wound up being my agent, I kept saying, I'm old, I'm old, I'm old. I was like, ah, shut up, you know. And so finally she said, look, if you think that you're really getting old, why don't you go hang out with somebody who's really old? Why don't you go volunteer your time at one of these, you know, at a a center where there are elderly people looking for support, that kind of thing. So I thought, okay, that's a great idea. So I signed up, not thinking of writing anything. I signed up and it was to this service where you are connected with a person who you go visit once a week. And I went and met the person who they connected me with. She blew my mind. I love this woman. I was supposed to see her once a week. I saw her all the time for years. And I just realized there's a book writing within me. And what I was writing about was the terror of getting old and hanging out with somebody who was 50 years older than me at the time and her perspective. And it was funny. And, you know, it was, you know, the book was writing me. Do you know what I mean? I you do. Know, I know. It wasn't like, I think I want to write a book about my life because, you know, I tried doing that when I was younger. I've got things to say. I didn't have anything to say. But I had, I had an experience. I was a children's book writer, and I had an experience, and I put together this proposal, and I had a wonderful agent. And four days after it went out to sale, there was an auction of six people. It'll never happen again. I'm amazed it happened then. But the point was, I guess when something's meant to be heard, yeah. it gets out there. 
people resonated with it. Oh, and it sounded like it was the right story at the right time. And, right uh, story at the yeah. right time. And the right ability to be able to just be vulnerable and just say, to really let it loose, you know, to say the things that I wanted to say. You know, and to realize when you're saying the things that you want to say, you're probably saying the things that a lot of people are wanting yeah. to say. You're not saying what a lot of people are wanting to say. Maybe you're not saying anything that's going to be whatever whatever that word is. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> now, both you and I do some work in the corporate world, and both you and I are not corporate people with corporate pasts. So I'm very curious because part of the fourth act, this is about stepping into new acts and having different experiences in life. And at some point, you were this very accomplished children's book author, wrote a memoir, and then somehow you ended up being a story coach, guide, consultant for a corporate entity, which is a different planet. How did that first engagement come about? Well, first, I, I never, I mean, I had never worked in a corporate environment. And I came from a family where we were discouraged from going into business yeah. because businesses, you know, where uncreators live. But I needed to make a living. I had a three book deal and I was living in New York and that would get me through lunch and a cup of coffee, you know, so I needed to do something else. But most importantly, I discovered that the way that I felt when I wrote a kid's book and what I heard and being with, I was with over a hundred thousand kids. There's like an interim period there of having, I realized that if I asked somebody what was the first book that they remembered ever being read to them and I asked them certain questions, they would respond and they would open up in a way that answered all the branding questions that I couldn't stand in about an hour. So we could then take that into who they really were. So that rather than just, you know, slapping on an idea of that's the way to put it, of this is what you, who you are and what makes you different people would have an immediate experience of the kind of like what originally made them different. What, as somebody once said to me, this is the first time that I feel like I'm validated since the second grade. It would bring them back to their natural, easy voice. And if they had the courage to, and, and when they could see how, how much it benefited their business and their leadership, then they were interested in talking to me. And that was a, that was a long not a long road of getting started and muddling through, but a long road of getting people to understand why they would want to talk to me. Again, I'm putting myself in your shoes and I'm thinking of my own journey. Part of what I had to overcome, you know, again, I, I love working in the corporate world. It's been, I love the people I work with. It's been very lucrative for me, but I had to stop seeing folks in that world as the aliens you know, because that was my old story about people that were different. And all of the stories about how we're similar or different, I had to just throw the garbage bin because they wouldn't serve me anywhere. But I could also see that people in a corporate might go, gosh, she's a super creative, quirky person. But what do we have in common with her? Like, what can she teach us? Like these these barriers we all create. How did that play out for you or and what, if anything, did you have to overcome? Oh, great questions. Well, I was arrogant. That was, let's just start with that. 
the, the value of, of na- naivete and arrogance. Ironically, I had a natural head for business, really, in a lot of ways. But I just realized from the first time that I actually had an opportunity to do this in a very high-level environment, I realized that basically we were all six-year-olds showing up at work, struggling to be professional and, and all these things that all the answers as to who you really wanted to be when you grew up were still there, just shrouded over in a lot of education and, and techniques and strategies and uh, business ideas and stuff. And so I just had to know that I was going in as quirky and wait for the people who would then say to me, I don't know what you just did, but you just blew my mind. Let's go. And I would get those and I would start getting some big companies. And I think it's how I came over that. It was not trying to be what I wasn't. How oh, beautiful. And I, I get that even as you and I are speaking now. And my, I want to test an idea as, I'm, as you are talking about this. What I heard is that the way you get to the moment where you blow their mind is by asking some very simple questions that allow people to go back to a more original state. Did I hear right. that correctly? Yes, a more original state. And then because there's, I have like must like some kind of like a tweak in my brain or something, but because I love kids' books, I've been with over 100,000 kids. Yeah. I've written them, and, and because they were read to me so consistently when I was a kid, which was a savior of my life, I can hear... Store the stories and people. It sounds like I see dead people, but it's really not like that. That are just shrouded over. So I'll start talking to somebody. It's almost like they won't even realize. Like I'll ask them a question to get them into the story. It's like, what color was the front of the book? What color was, you know? And somebody would start and say, you know, uh, I don't remember a lot of. I don't remember. I have no idea. And then, you know, once once they heard they were there in a place where somebody was listening to them in a very peculiar, different kind of way. Then they would say, okay, it was green, it was this, it was that. And I would just start asking them intuitive questions, and it would open up for them. They would remember who they were, and they would see the the connections. Most often, I cannot believe I've spent my whole career doing this. And I remember reading this book now when I was five years old, and had no idea that it was basically shaping the trajectory of my career and everything I wanted. That's what people were interested in. It's like... Really quickly, during the last election, when I can't remember when that was, but Michael, when Michael Bloomberg was running, yeah. been elections, but you know, in his speech, he mentioned that when he was a kid, it was part of his speech. He used to remember reading the book Johnny Tremaine, his kids' book Johnny Tremaine, and how it shaped his, shaped his entire life. And it was like, yes, like when people get it, it's like a brand. Something sticks in a kid's book when you're a child, unlike any other kind of book. There's a stick that happens. Like not a hit you with the head stick, but something that sticks and stays. And when people get reconnected with that, they flow quickly through what they've been struggling with. They come up with better ideas. They, they write, they, you know, I'm working with a company now that just sold their business for $3.2 billion. They, you know, all sorts of stuff happens. In a way, you're like a, I would say like a creative anthropologist, right? Uh, you help people unearth things. That's beautiful. Thank you. Now, a question that's emerging for me, and, and it's, a, it's a question for me, for you, and for a lot of our listeners. When we've been doing something for a while, 
you know, like you writing children's books, you know, being a story coach, consultant, excavator. Do you ever get to the point where you go, it's time to move on? I've done this once too often. How how do you know when that moment comes and what do you do when those moments arise? Well, the beauty of life, I guess, is I have so many other challenges and things going on. The moments arise. Not that I'm afraid that I've done this already, but I'm afraid I, you know, what, well, what if I can't keep doing this or I don't have the clients or I don't, I think about it and then I, I find myself continuing to do what I'm doing. I think about it, but it doesn't, it doesn't really stop me from wanting to do. I'm very, I'm very passionate about help about, that's a word I don't use that often, but I love being able to see grown up people be saved by their own childhood stories and put that into their business. It makes me happy. So I, I, you know, I figure this makes me happy. At the same time, a year ago, I, I moved out of, LA and I've always lived in major cities my whole life and I'm living in a city with 7,800 people and, and vultures walking down the street and everything that I'm completely unfamiliar with. So I have, um, a lot to try and figure out there. You know, it's, it's just like, why did I do this? So the point is I have another adventure here that I'm struggling with and trying to find my way through and it keeps me balanced. It's <laughs> well, in, in the spirit of what we talked about earlier, which is improvisational versus strategic moving to a small city of 7,800 from LA. Was that a strategic move with a lot of thought behind it or it just came and felt right and you did it? Well, it, it, very briefly, it was a cosmic move. I don't know, a California word. I forgive me. Oh, I, I can handle cosmic. Go for it. Good. It was very much a cosmic move. My, um, my brother who lived here, um, who was my best friend, who had a couple of kids. Anyway, he's, he died suddenly. My sister had just died, and my best friend had just died. And then I lost my brother. And when my brother died, he left my nieces some money, and they said, why don't you come on out here, and we'll help you buy a house, get a house. We'll get a house out here. We'll get a house. We'll buy for the house. It's very expensive here. And you can just pay to live in it. You can, we can rent it and everything else. So it was partially like... It was a moment of like, okay, I gotta go because LA is a mess falling apart and I was sick of where I was living and I was just, it was strategic. It was cosmic. It was like undeniable that I had to do this. I mean, who would pass this up when your nieces say, cause I have no more, no more surviving family except somebody in New York. They say, we want you around us. It's like, well, I'll be there. Long answer to a short question. I was debating whether or not to tell my own version of this, but I remember a year, a year and a half ago, I, I was living in a beautiful big compound that I owned with two houses and a lap pool, like a, a dream space and a funky emerging neighborhood that's very hot right now. And I was offered more money than I thought than I could have imagined for that. And I had been thinking about wanting to simplify my life. And suddenly, very quickly, I realized if I connect these dots, maybe it's time to sell this property, which nobody could believe I would. And then the journey becomes, you know, what is there to learn in the new place that we are? Or what is there to embrace, right? What wisdom does it hold that I didn't, couldn't access before because I was somewhere else? 
What are you learning about yourself in your new playground? I'm learning I want everybody from L.A. to come up and visit me. I'm lonely. <laughs> I'm learning to acquire gentler, more boring, strange, odd, odd little place. It's better for me. It took me a while to get used to the fact that it was quiet here. And it made me realize I don't want to be alone anymore. I've, I've lived alone for a long time. I don't want to work alone. You get up here, it's like, hello, hello. It's just uh made me realize I've, I have a lot of friends in California and around the country for which I'm very grateful. But it made me realize it's, you know, I need to do more than I thought that I needed to do to come up here. I thought, well, you know, I know a couple of people, so there's going to be parades coming down the street to welcome me. You know, between COVID and everything else, I'm discovering that I just, I want things to be different and that I, I need to wake up every day and just say, this is going to be a great day. And I like doing that. And most days I can do that because otherwise I'll be walking around going, I can't believe I just paid to have this fence fixed. I mean, it's like, it's like the money pit, you know, but I've got a big yard and I'm about to, I'm discovering about myself that I got to let go of thinking I'm ever going to know much about myself. That's really what I'm discovering. Yeah. I'm welcoming. You're very welcome to come here anytime. It's it's a very, right. very desirable little town. Everybody flocks here, but it's different to be to flock, to flock here as a guest than to live here. Again, and I'm speaking about life transitions moving forward and things stepping into more quiet is that many of us need, even if we don't consciously desire it. And sometimes we don't know that we need it until we step into it and experience it and realize, oh, this is what this feels like, right? It was shocking for me. I'd been coming here for years, and I used to always say when my brother was alive, I'd say, you know, it's great to be here for two days. i got to get out of here. It's just quiet for me. And then it's great to realize I'm here now. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. Now, because this is the My Fourth Act podcast, and the fourth act is really a metaphor playing on the notion that the classic traditional well-written play has five acts. And the fourth act is the act when we've figured out a whole bunch of maybe old drama has been resolved. We're not ready to die yet. So the fourth act can be an act of discovering new things, of exploration, doing more of this or less of that. So if you think of your life in place where you are now and you're still doing the same work you're doing, are you able to say, these are some things I'd like to have more of, these are some things I'd like to do less of, or is that too prescriptive of a question? No, it's a great question. I don't know if I'm able to. I'm able to say that I'm. I'd, uh, what I'd like to do more of is, is I'd like to work with other people. I'd like to find other people to work with. I mean, in addition to my clients, I'd like to collaborate with, you know, somebody that made sense to do stuff with. I, I want to, I'd like to say I'd like to travel more, but that would be lying. I, I'm really not crazy about getting on an airplane right now with everything going on. I think um, I'm not ready to die. I wish everybody around me that was, would not be ready to die either. Stuff starts happening to people. I'm ready to do things that I think you know, I've closed myself off from, 
but I'm also ready to recognize that I come, I came up here with like, okay, I figured this out. I know I'll get, I'll get a shovel. I'll do it. You know, I'll, I'll have the farm and everything else. And then it goes slowly and, and, and then it's slowly. And then I, I think, well, at this point I should be able to, you know, just run out there because what matters because, you know, and it's not, it's not all that. It's so I think that what I want to do more of is, is work with people doing this kind of work, this particular aspect of work. I love working with people. I want to collaborate with people. I'd like to have a partner in my life again. It's been a while since I've had that. And I feel like I'm in a position to have a better kind of relationship with people. I'd like to discover what I keep saying, that this is the best time of my life. As I said, this is the best time of your life. You know, my mind will start arguing, yeah, but what about, but, 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 all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's a, it's a good time. I don't have any debts. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, but I'm certainly not ready to die. Um, no, because I, I, I've outlived my, my, both my sister and my mother by a while. So I don't, I don't think it's, I, I'm not ready to die. It sounds boring. It's boring. No, no, no. I appreciate the clarity of your answer. So I'm wondering. Because you, you just offered what I call the wisdom perspective. And if you, you take what you know now about life that you couldn't have known when you were a teenager, even though I, I was struck by how specific your vision, visions and desires for yourself were. Um, what kind of wisdom or guidance would you give a younger version of yourself right now that might help them in life? What would you want them to know about life that you know now that you couldn't have known when you were young? What a lovely question. Well, gosh, I guess the wisdom I would give them is to consider the possibility. Like for a long time, I was always saying, when I get old, I'm going to live on a duck farm. When I get old, to consider that the possibility that all that stuff's going to happen, <laughs> that it's going to show up one way or another. I think the wisdom I would give my younger self is to say, is to teach myself that I'm enough. You know, just let what's given be enough, as I think Eleanor Roosevelt said, or her husband, or some cartoon character or whatever, but let what's given be enough. I was always afraid. This isn't enough. This isn't enough. I wasn't enough. And I was watching your your um, TED talk last night. Yeah. Very moved by that. It's like, how will I know when enough is enough? It's when enough becomes too much, you know. But I don't want. I don't want to get to that point. But yeah, yeah I, would, I would try and tell myself that I was lovable the way that I was. I would try. You know, I would try and tell myself to not confuse your purpose for being here with anything having to do with saving the earth. And uh, I would try and convince myself, I think if I could, to stop looking at what hadn't been given and start looking more at what has been given. Then I would see more clearly what reality was. A beautiful note to end on. I I have so many versions of that myself. So I, you were speaking to me directly when you said that. Now, because you are hugely accomplished through your writing and through the story work you do with individuals and corporations, for listeners who want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find more about you, Leah? I'm on LinkedIn. I also have a website. 
which is pretty much where people reach me. www.leahlehkomaiko.com. I'm not Japanese, if you want to know. People ask all the time. Well, thank you for the gift of this conversation and uh, for being the wonderfully quirky you that you are. I'm back at you. Back at you. Thank Thank you for this opportunity. What a pleasure. Thank you. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.